Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 115 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. This is a program in which I and my guests are going through the Criterion Collection, through all of the films under that Criterion brand. Basically, we're covering them in the chronological order of their original release. And so it's my great pleasure today to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's 1972 film Frenzy, which for the majority of uh, all of our lives was not part of the Criterion Collection in any way. But under the uh, aegis of the Criterion Channel for two months in December of last year and January of this year, 2022, uh, there was a bundle called Hitchcock for the Holidays in which they basically... It looked to me like they replicated the contents of a pretty well-known and very popular uh, box set that packages a pretty broad range of Hitchcock classics from uh, fairly early in his career, but also all the way through the, the classic golden period, Rear Window, uh, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho. Um, what's the other big one that I'm missing there? I think The Birds. Yeah, that one came after. Yeah, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um the Trouble with Harry, you know, but basically all those big tent poles were um, released on the Criterion Channel just for a couple months. Uh, for some reason, they were able to pry them out of the hands of Universal Studios, and uh, very welcome for me to have a chance once again to talk about Alfred Hitchcock. Actually, this is the first time I've had a chance to talk about him on this podcast. Um, back when this uh, project was more of a blog, I did talk about some of those Criterion titles that Hitchcock released in the uh, early years of his uh, transition from England to Hollywood as well as even earlier films like uh, The Lady Vanishes, The 39 Steps. But when he came to Hollywood, worked with Selznick, he did Rebecca, he did Notorious, he did Spellbound. Um, those are kind of the, the key films that the Criterion Collection has featured for a long time. Uh, but, yeah, they would never have gotten their hands on things like Psycho, North Mind Northwest, Vertigo, or Rear Window in particular. Those are four of the most discussed, you know, well-documented uh, critically and popularly revered films that Hitchcock put together. There's there's probably no director on the planet who has been more scrutinized, written about, catalog, obsessed over than the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. You know, there's a few others out there, Stanley Kubrick, uh, maybe Ingmar Bergman in the art house set. There's a few other rivals for that best director of all time, but I think Hitchcock may still be the one who towers over them all just because uh, the, the reach of his uh, films. They, they have a very popular audience, uh, but there's a, a lot of critical love and admiration for the way he pursued his craft. And the guy himself was just such a, uh, an odd figure, a very unique individual, um, great talent, a lot of uh, armchair psychology material if you want to get into analyzing his personal life and the way some of his uh, inner obsessions and repressions uh, manifested themselves on screen over the course of quite a few decades. You know, Hitchcock started in the silent era and worked all the way up into the mid-70s. In fact, uh, this film here was his penultimate, his second-to-last film. There will be one more family plot, which, uh, assuming I stay with this format and we get us to 1976, I'll have a chance to talk about that one. But I'm joined today by a couple guys who 
likewise pounced on this uh, unexpected opportunity to talk about Alfred Hitchcock. So let's go ahead and introduce our guests. Uh, first, Richard Doyle. Richard, welcome back. Uh, here again, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I I appreciate it, and, and it is good to have you back. And I know that when you saw this uh, kind of quietly pop up on my spreadsheet, you were pretty quick to jump on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a fascinating film. It sure is. And David Seeley, I know you've not been on this spreadsheet for quite as long, but I'm really happy to have you on, especially as our man over in England. Thank you, David. I, I just want to say it's lovely, lovely to be here. And <laughs> this this podcast is is my type. So I'm always happy to join you. Uh, well, I, I would normally be very flattered by that. <laughs> I'm a little bit leery. I was going to ask, though, any uh, any fresh corpses floating down the Thames these days? Oh, uh, uh, Well, I haven't looked, but I, I did notice a couple of uh, stray potato sacks uh, that, that were <laughs> sitting around suspiciously, so... All right. Well, it's good to have you over there in England and definitely eager to hear your thoughts on uh, on this very fascinating um, late career you know, spectacle that uh, Hitchcock put together. So, you know, I've already had a few things to say about Hitchcock. Richard, let me just ask you a little bit about um, your assessment of the director himself. And David, I'll give you the same opportunity uh, you know, again, Hitchcock is almost universally admired. Do you have any special angles or appreciations for uh, Hitch that uh, you want to talk about here? It's funny. I've often I often say that I'm like a Hitchcock skeptic, but that's not really true. It's just I, I'd say <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of sort of mid range Hitchcock films that people seem very fond of, and I'm not, and that's part of why I say that. I, I, I think my my love for him is quite qualified but then when i think about it there's close to 10 films of his that i think are absolutely magnificent and that's a a very large number of films yeah yeah his career really is is almost unparalleled because of the specific range that he covered and the fact that he he did he made a number of films uh going back to his days in england uh, the 1940s up through the 50s uh, and into the early 60s that are just you know, right up there in those top 200 or 1,000 or whatever all-time great film lists, uh, those those films that kind of rely on a, a consensus of opinions, you know, they poll 100 critics, and, and Hitchcock's going to have several right up there. And, and nobody's really going to argue or dispute that. It's just kind of a given fact that, you know, Alfred Hitchcock is, is one of the all-time masters. But I, I do hear what you're saying about the skepticism where, you know, he is so beloved and so praised and so analyzed and poured over that, you know, it's almost inevitable that there's going to be a little bit of a, you know, backlash or just kind of like, hey, let's let's tone it down here. He's not the only guy out there making movies, right? Yeah. He somehow, it, it somehow he, he's comparable in a way to Steven Spielberg in that, mm-hmm. you know, he, absolutely beloved by the public and absolutely beloved by critics. And produces a huge number of, of, of really wonderful films so that when I say, you know, oh, there's a few Spielberg films that I don't like that much, it makes it feel like I'm a big critic of Spielberg, and it's just not really true. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Contrarian over here. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Well, David, give me a little bit of your thoughts on, on Hitchcock, uh, the, the general, you know, the career, the personality. Uh, yeah. what, is, what have his films meant to you? Well, I mean, like you, you've both mentioned, I mean, he's, he's such a uh, 
he's probably one of the few film directors that uh, that has that great celebrity like a Steven Spielberg or maybe you could argue Martin Scorsese as well that that everybody knows who they are and even when they think of film directors those are kind of the 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 go-to names that people associate with film directors um uh you know and he, you know all of them are great filmmakers but they're also they've all had a lot of commercial uh success and uh, you know Alfred Hitchcock had his TV series as well so he's just mm-hmm. like you know part of the culture so it is almost uh, difficult sometimes to have uh, any kind of perspective on him really because he is just so much uh, part of the culture. I mean, for me personally, my favorite films of his are the the early British kind of talkies, the the early sound films like that he did, like you know, Sabotage and Lady Vanishes and uh, Thirty Nine Steps. I mean, to me, those are just such wonderful, clever, entertaining films that I could just watch them anytime and just get absorbed into them and and just really be entertained and and enjoying some of them I've probably seen like, you know, 30, 40 times in my lifetime. Mm. And I still, wow. every time I watch them, I just absolutely just get sucked into them and just love them to bits. And uh, it, w- when you mentioned about you, you were, you kind of put the call out for people to come and, and speak to you about frenzy. I kind of jumped at the chance because I'd realized just quite recently, I'd been looking through my discs one evening, looking for something that I wanted to watch. And, um, I came across the Alfred Hitchcock, uh, what's it called? The Masterpieces Collection. It's like the universal yes. mm-hmm. kind of all-in-one box set that just sort of hoovers up all of the titles that they have in their catalog. And uh, and I just thought to myself, you know, some of these films I haven't watched in, in a really long time, uh, and I'd like to sort of revisit them now. I think I was ready. So just almost like literally the same day it was, I saw your message on Facebook and I immediately said, oh, well, there you go. There's my excuse now to watch Frenzy. Mm. So I kind of jumped at the chance to to do it. Uh, by by sheer coincidence. Yeah, it, it was. Very it, but it was a good, a happy coincidence. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very. And I'm definitely glad to have you on. So now you've seen Frenzy before, or was oh, this oh yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen it a few times oh, okay. before, and and we maybe will will discuss it a little bit later on in the show. But but I've mm-hmm. I've actually got an interesting personal connection to this film as well that I can uh, maybe we can discuss that a little bit later on. But um, sure. but that's another reason why it was quite kind of nice to sit down and I and I actually watched it with my wife on Thursday night and it was the first time I'd seen it in maybe I don't know it's it's been a while maybe ten years or more since I'd actually mm. watched it okay. and uh, and again I just was you know well not to I don't want to come right up front sort of saying how much I like it but I do quite like this film it's it's a very kind of morbid very black humor and and a lot of um, you know. Uh, and you could see it Hitchcock, he was free because it was a much more, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the censorship had relaxed with the new rating system that had come in at the time. So obviously filmmakers were a bit more free to um, have a bit more stronger content. Uh, and I think oh, this yeah. was the first yeah. time uh, Hitchcock had been able to make a film uh, unfettered by sort of uh, censorship concerns and things like that. Uh, and he quite clearly, you know, was having a, a great time just sort of uh, letting his hair down, so to speak, with, uh, you know, it's quite a strong film. You know, there's, there's 
quite disturbing elements to it. And, um, you know, there's some quite graphic scenes or more graphic than you would associate with uh, a lot of his films. Uh, so it, it's quite an interesting, I think, um, piece of work from him that it kind of stands out in that respect. And it's also a very British film because it was his first time back in England for quite some time. And I think um, uh, he was quite enjoying it. And, and some of it's filmed in Covent Garden, which had uh, some close ties for, for him historically because his father owned uh, owned shops and things in Covent Garden. And so for him, it was sort of like a homecoming uh, to be able to film there and spend some time there. Uh, so I think all those things make it quite an interesting uh, film. Well, absolutely. And we may touch on some of those, uh, you know, those themes or ideas that you've, you've tossed out there, but that's a really great kind of lead into this particular movie as we are wont to do in this podcast, because we are working our way chronologically. Uh, it's just nice to look at these films in the context of their times. And so, Talking about Hitchcock in particular, you know, he was kind of coming off of a uh, probably the least successful string of films, uh, really up to that point in his career. You know, Richard, you had mentioned there's there's a lot of middling stuff, and especially when he was putting out films almost annually, sometimes even more than one film a year in the you know throughout the 40s and 50s. That's almost to be expected. You're you're he's basically just a, a very popular commercial filmmaker not necessarily making blockbusters in the way like Spielberg has for for quite a few you know decades now because movies weren't always you know billion dollar franchise types of things like what we've gotten used to now or even hundreds of millions as as a lot of Spielberg's films have racked up but he was clearly a brand director you know a Hitchcock movie would would put him in the seats because you were going to be entertained with a mix of thrills and suspense and clever dialogue you know eccentric characters and he was just always throwing little twists out there and, and some of the films like the trouble with harry have more of a comedic element um that that kind of golden age of of uh, rear window vertigo north by northwest psycho all have this almost this meta cinematic feel to him as as hitchcock is really exploring you know the the art the artistry of filmmaking and and the, uh, the the kind of voyeuristic aspects of of that, and also bringing some of his interest in psychology and sexuality, uh, really to the higher forefront of his storytelling, uh, in ways that because he did have to work within the the constraints of censorship, you see a lot of really intellectually satisfying material that you can sort of dig into and, and do that armchair analysis and all of that. But uh, after The Birds, which I think was pretty well widely considered kind of the end of that era, um, three films came out, Marnie, uh, Torn Curtain, and Topaz, which, you know, in the almost standard biographical approach are kind of Hitchcock's floundering years. He's He's got the profile, he's got the studio budgets and endorsements, but there's also an expectation that he's going to do things a certain way. And, and I think he's really just kind of at this, this midlife or later <laughs> than midlife crossroads trying to figure out what he's going to do next. And those three films um, just 
didn't quite hit the mark. Uh, we're in the 1960s now, the late 60s, where the culture is really changing in, in many, many ways, and Hitchcock's just kind of getting older, and and uh, with all of those different elements hanging over his head, uh, pressures from the studio, you know, casting Julie Andrews and Paul Newman in Torn Curtain, uh, great actors, great performers, but not really Hitchcock's type to work with. He's adapting novels. He's getting into political thrillers. But, you know, the, the heart's not really in it, and the movies are just not seen as that successful. They do have their defenders. I don't know if David or Richard, if you guys want to talk about any of those films that led up to Frenzy. Uh, but, you know, the, the common adjective that, the, uh, that was used back in the original reviews in 72 uh, when Frenzy turned out to be a commercial hit, as well as even retrospectively, this is Hitch's return to form, you know, uh, that we're kind of capturing some of that energy, some of that, some you know, slightly perverse, uh, witty blend of, of violence and humor. Um, you know, all the elements are there. Uh, but yeah, what, what do you guys think about this as kind of a, a reset for Hitchcock's late career, com, you know, coming off of those three films that I just mentioned that are certainly less than universally beloved. Richard, you want to take a shot at that? Yeah, I, I'd say I kind of like Torn Curtain, and Marnie is, has its plus points. I don't think there's many many people who defend Topaz, and it's worth noting he didn't really want to make Topaz, and he was right, probably right, right not to want to make Topaz. Um. I think I was I was glancing through like the Truffaut's book on Hitchcock to the like mm -hmm. reading this period and around the frenzy period and you really do get a sense that uh, he was a bit of a, a casualty of the of the studio system falling apart at this point when there was trouble finding projects that studios were willing to pay for that he would that were good matches to him. You know, so the studio wanted to adapt Topaz because it's a Leon Uris novel and it was like a commercial success, but that he's not the kind of director you would ever really think of doing a a broad political thriller like that. Right. So I think this one, I, I should say, I don't really love Frenzy. <laughs> I, okay, that's fine. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a good film. I think it's got elements in it that don't sit together very well and i'm not fond of part of them and i'm fond of part of them but i think this one is really interesting because it's not just that he gets you know gets a hold of a screenplay that feels like a hitchcock screenplay again but he's also you know pushing forward like trying to match what the hitchcock imitators in the period are doing because by the time this mm -hmm. comes out the films that are like considered like you know hitchcockian are are pretty intense films at this point and he's sort of a in danger of becoming a bit of a relic and he he steps up and I'm, I'm not sure i always i think that it it works that well for him i mean that's one of the things i'm not so sure about in this film is whether mm -hmm. some of the graphicness of it fits him all that well but yeah but it's um if anything i, I can see that the people saying it's like a return to form because it's a return to what you expect from him and it's a return to him feeling comfortable as a filmmaker again because even though there are things in torn curtain that i like it doesn't feel like he has any sense for this for that movie like it's just sort of unfolding <laughs> yeah i think torn curtain there's a few sort of set pieces and a few sort of cinematic things that he does that are kind of 
in my memory, and it's been a few years, those are the standout moments yeah. where Hitchcock throws this kind of flourishes in there. But the rest of the story is just, you know, it's kind of a star vehicle for Newman and Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews kind of doing something that was different than, you know, Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. Uh, more of a dramatic role. I don't think she sings at all in the film. And then Paul Newman, of course, he was just sort of the, the marketable, hunky guy of his time and a great actor, did a lot of fantastic work. But um, it just it never really gelled as a as a, an overall project there. So yeah, um, right. All of these films. I mean, basically, almost everything that Hitchcock ever did has its redeeming moments. Partly because they're all little pieces of the larger story. If you get into him as a character, as a personality, as an influential, uh, you know, master of cinema and a creative force, and all of that. You're going to see those little trademark touches, and it's just going to add to your overall knowledge and appreciation of what the guy could do. Even the failures kind of have their redeeming qualities. Uh, David, tell me a little bit about your kind of assessment of Hitchcock's late career and, and, and how this film kind of uh, maybe altered the trajectory that he'd been on throughout the, the remainder of the 1960s. Well, I, I mean, I think Richard summed it up very well. I mean, the, the preceding three films that you mentioned, I mean, I haven't watched them recently as, as well. I, I was, I intended to kind of revisit some of them as well. But but I must admit, I, my memories of them are not particularly flattering. I think they're, they're fairly uneven films uh, you know like you say there are certain moments in them in in all of them where you get those nice little hitchcock touches and he, he was obviously a a master craftsman and and even in these films you know it's sort of more mediocre films there's always those little moments and nice touches that he comes up with but but i agree with the assessment that i think he was in a little bit of a lull at the time creatively and 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 those films don't really, um, uh, I don't hold them in particularly uh, high regard, um, really. Um, uh, but Frenzy, I, I think, is a bit, like, it's just a very entertaining film. It's not perfect. I agree again with Richard that it, it, there, there, it has its flaws. And there are certain things about it that sit a bit uncomfortably. Uh, I mean, one thing, I mean, there's some certain scenes in it that are quite uncomfortable because they're, they're, you know, quite unpleasant. Um, and, and he has a very, very, there's a very sort of morbid sense of humor that runs through it that, uh, I don't know, maybe in my old age, I'm getting a little bit more sort of uncomfortable with <laughs> sort of unpleasantness and things like that. So, um, but at the same time, the film has some really, um, terrific moments is very funny very entertaining at times uh and the stories involving and it, it 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 is very similar to a lot of his earlier work and the fact that it's um you know a, a man wrongly accused he's kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time and gets um uh, you know, through circumstantial evidence, he's kind of the prime suspect in the murder. And it's got a bit of an almost a giallo feel to it. I mean, it's not quite, doesn't quite fall into that kind of format, but it, um, it has certain elements of that, I think as well. Um, so I, I mean, I, I do really, I quite like frenzy again. I wouldn't say it's like my absolute favorite Hitchcock film or anything like that. 
but it, it definitely uh, is, is uh, worth a watch and it's quite an entertaining film. Well, let's get into analyzing the film itself. Uh, so Frenzy, as we've already kind of established, this is Hitchcock back in England, uh, his most you know, his, his most recent uh, Englishly, English-produced film uh, was Stage Fright, which I happened to, um, I, I kind of, a uh, little sideline here, I inherited like five big boxes full of DVDs from a from a uh, an acquaintance that passed away last year, and, and his wife uh, contacted me and says, my husband had a whole bunch of movies, I really don't need them in my house anymore, would you be interested? I said, sure, I'll come down and take a look, and voila, I get this trove of uh, really a lot of really interesting stuff, you know, especially a lot of golden age Hollywood classics, also some interesting independent uh, American films, Hollywood films from the last couple decades, but amongst this this trove was a film in a as a DVD in a plain white wrapper, if so to speak, a case that just had the word "stage fright" written in black magic marker. And I opened. I was like, "Oh, that's Hitchcock's stage fright." So I actually watched that. It's not the best transfer. I don't know if he got it some through some kind of bootleg or eBay or who knows what, but was able to watch that. That's one starring Marlena Dietrich, which is kind of fascinating. Just to get the two of those uh, Titanic uh, kind of cultural icons together. Um, but that was the last one that he had done in England. And so this film here, I think Hitchcock had kind of broken a little not loose of the studio system but he had he had managed to craft himself a sort of an independent uh opportunity to make a film more on his own terms and i know richard you said you were going to read the novel the was it yeah. yeah so did you get a chance to look that over at all do you have a quick s- summary of the source material that we're working from here uh, yeah, I do. Um, I don't know if you want me, how much you want me to say now, but it's... Just it's, give us a quick sketch here and, and how it kind of led to Hitchcock saying, yeah, let's go ahead and adapt this. It's very similar to what you see in the movie. Mm-hmm. The only like huge differences are the character's a bit older. Okay. Which makes a little bit more sense. You're talking sense. about the Blaney character? Yeah, the... yeah. Yeah, there's some dialogue in the movie that doesn't make sense, but lady's age right but he's supposed mm-hmm. to be a world war ii vet oh okay yeah right so it sort of makes some of the backstory make sense his relationship with barbara is starts right there in the movie he doesn't have an existing one with her okay oh okay yeah and um there isn't a murder streak going on oh this isn't like a serial killer thing no, no. that was contrived for the film, which really opens up with this oh, another necktie murderer. So there's a serial killer, a, a psychotic guy who's out there strangling women to death with not just neckties, but with club ties, which I, I don't know, David, if you've got some insight on that, but these are specific colors that have insignias or some kind of significance for... I don't know what what kind of clubs are these social men's organizations, clubs. men's clubs, or are they or they might be schools like okay. here. They they a lot of private schools and things. They well, not even private schools, but a lot of public schools. They have um, you know like um, specific colors that are um, uh, sort of um, represent their schools and things like that. So that that might be what some of that is. Okay. So yeah, so th- that's that. So that whole element that's imported or that that's actually yeah. created for the film. Yeah, but I think the what would have attracted him is the whole um, the main character being 
falling into this situation where he's you know he's implicated in this murder and it looks very Mm -hmm. much like he did it is essentially the plot of the book the uh it's interesting that the first murder in it like the very graphic one in the movie the book does a trick that you can't really do in the movie. It doesn't tell you who it is. Oh, okay. Like because he, he's using a fake name. Uh, yeah. Okay. Right? Oh, right, right. Right. It's only when the second murder happens that you realize it's it's his friend. Right. Okay. So so Blaney is is kind of set up by the author of that book to look like pretty likely he was the one and that no you a, know it's not him but you just oh, know because 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 bob rusk there is using a pseudonym you just think i it, see you just think okay. it's this somebody it's a new character right yeah well and this one here you know it, it opens on this majestic shot you know a helicopter shot going down the thames through the tower bridge and then there's a little bit of a fade out and then it opens up on this scene I don't know if that's the North Bank, the South Bank, if it makes any kind of difference, David. Yeah, it's down South Bank. That that scene is shot just basically where the London Eye is now, you know, the big Ferris wheel that they have. That's more or less right there, just across from uh, St. Thomas Hospital. Okay. Yeah, now I'm certainly no master of the topography and and the layout of London, but as I was watching that shot from presumably from 71, 72 when it was first made. I figured that that uh, riverscape has changed quite a bit over the years. I mean, there's still a lot of pretty sooty red brick buildings and it looks still pretty industrial. And I would think that's some pretty prime real estate that's probably been gentrified and gussied up quite a bit in the intervening decades. In fact, I think Covent Gardens was already scheduled to not be a fruit and veggie market anymore is that correct yeah. i mean that seemed like a yeah. some pretty nice uh you know real estate uh, that could be used for a lot of other more upscale ventures than selling uh, potatoes and squash and oranges that, that's certainly a nice thing about the film actually is that it captured all of that on film that that whole sort of area before it uh, changed because mm-hmm. now Covent Garden is all sort of like fancy shops and restaurants and it's um, kind of a boutique type of area there yeah know. exactly and it's uh, so it's completely uh, changed from what's what you see in the film there so it, it's quite nice that uh, Hitchcock documented that that area and that kind of life you know the the way of life and that what was happening there before it was gone so uh, it's quite interesting just to see it um um, from that perspective as well for sure as it has a has an historical document of of covent garden at that time there's a little making of feature on the blu-ray and in that mm-hmm. Anna massey mentions that they did know that was it was going away at the time that they were talking to each other making the film that they were mm-hmm. that covent garden was going to be gone within a couple of years Kind of like when we were watching Fat City, Richard, and uh, Stockton was going through some urban renewal. <laughs> Two very different uh, cities and reputations for sure, but uh, kind of funny to compare London and Stockton, California. <laughs> so anyways, we're, we're pretty quickly set up with the main character, which is Blaney. He, he uh, We find out a little bit later on is kind of a discharged uh, Royal Air Force captain. I don't know if he, it seemed like he was discharged under less than ideal circumstances, He's got a broken marriage. Uh, he's basically booted uh, from his job in the very first scene when his boss catches him, you know, uh, sipping a, a nip of of uh, some kind of alcohol um, that he, you know, meant to pay for supposedly. But you know, it's just like, yeah, he's he's a drinker. He's pretty impulsive. Got a hot temper. All of these character traits are established right up front there. 
and uh, and he's he's a little bit on, on the reckless and foolish side as well, and so all of those elements, you know, kind of you know set him up to be potentially the type of character that could be this necktie murderer which was introduced even before we meet the Blaney character. Um, all these these intrigues are developed as we recognize, uh, you know, we, we watch him relating to his ex-wife, who's now running kind of a Lonely Hearts type of operation, connecting uh, potential mates um, you know, to you know, build relationships. A matchmaker, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. And, um, you know, even though she's doing well and has a, a prosperous business, He's kind of hanging around, pestering her a little bit, and all of those elements are set up. You know, you see them getting into a bit of an argument. The secretary is a witness to their kind of heated exchange, and that gives her all the testimony that she needs to sort of point the finger when, as it turns out, Barbara winds up dead, although we as the viewers see that it's not it's not Blaney. He's clearly the wrong man and innocent from the get-go, even though he's got a lot of, again, character attributes that might put him on the wrong side of the law. So these are, you know, the, the, the kind of building blocks that Hitchcock sets us up with. And this Bob Rusk character, um, the kind of Michael Caine lookalike, I, I guess Caine was originally... They they tried to cast him, but he wanted nothing to do with this particular role. Um, you know, I, I I wonder. I mean, um, I think the guy who plays Rusk does a good job, and I think if it had been Michael Caine, it would have almost been too overwhelming with his star power. You know, to to make this movie work the way that it did. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Richard? Uh, yeah, I think I gather that he wanted Foster because he's in the the Hitchcockian thriller twisted nerve before this. And, mm-hmm. um, um, he's, I think he's like a really, imp- an asset to this film. Not that Kane wouldn't have been. Cause one of the interesting things that the film does is put you on his side for a huge section of the film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like the whole potato track sequence is largely suddenly you're kind of rooting for him un- unwillingly. So, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> He's somebody not... with this with who's as charming as he is because it it lets you, it carries you through that like you yeah in some ways you're right he he is much more suave than than Blaney I mean Blaney's kind of coarse and uh, kind of uh, kind of stunted um, Bob Rusk has this kind of banter and this urban urbane demeanor and and all of that. Uh, and then there is that kind of that talking, uh, the the little uh, cop, not really a monologue, but kind of an expositional piece about the uh, sexual psychopath and the, the personalities here. And this is where, you know, David, you had mentioned some of those uncomfortable scenes uh, or aspects mm-hmm. where, you know, Hitchcock's kind of lurid fascination and, and, and uh, absorption of, of all of this pathology is almost delivered with a little bit too much relish. Is that sort of where you were going with, with that angle of, uh, well, yeah, I, I, I think so. There is, I mean, obviously the, the scene where we get to see, you know, sort of a rape and murder in, in quite, uh, you know, he lingers um, over kind of, it quite a bit. Yeah. He does. He does. And there is like sort of a very kind of a, like uncomfortable sort of feeling. I mean, I know at the beginning I was sort of just doing a little creepy sort of take on, on the, on Rusk. Yeah. Uh, when, when he's c- committing that crime. Uh, but, but it really obviously isn't funny. It's a very uncomfortable scene. It's very, 
shocking and he does sort of linger and and a lot and a lot of it almost seems a bit gratuitous um in in how he kind of lingers over the act and and sort of spells it out um quite graphically yeah and yeah. um uh it, but but at the same time it kind of he doesn't do it again later where there would have been yeah. more opportunities for him to kind of have more of that but he instead um uses a, a bit more clever means uh and, and that are just as effective when when there's murders happening um so he only does it the once and it is quite shocking especially because the the Russ character has been set up like you say as a very charming affable guy he's he's uh he's his mate and he's really uh, your uncle bob uh, all that right yeah exactly and he's a really he's, he seems like he's you know one of the good guys and then that scene t- turns quite quickly really nasty and unpleasant and it is a bit shocking and it's very effective in how you know, you can see the audience, especially if you consider, you know, obviously nowadays we're much more used to graphic, you know, unpleasantness on screen and things. But back in 1972, especially for, for an audience that's going to an Alfred Hitchcock film, they, you know, we're talking a mass audience mm-hmm. uh, and, a, and, a, and a major American film studio. So that scene must have been quite shocking and quite, you know, quite effective in, in terms of being quite horrifying and like, holy cow, this guy, not only is he not a good guy, but he's the bad guy. And th- this is really nasty and shocking. And so uh, I think it's quite an effective scene if, if from that standpoint, but I don't know, like I said, maybe in my old age, I'm starting to get a bit more squeamish, but, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but I did find it slightly un- uncomfortable <laughs> to watch well, as well. Right. The, Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I chose sure. not to watch it with my wife. We, we watched, uh, went through Kozlovsky's Decalogue and the short film about killing, or the episode that corresponds to that. You know, had mm-hmm. some pretty graphic uh, strangulation stuff going on, and and Julie, my wife, just she she had enough, and I thought, well, okay, this this frenzy. I don't. I mean, we we've, we've watched a lot of Hitchcock together, and we generally enjoy it. She watched stage fight with me as well the other night, but uh, she really was not in a mood for frenzy when I described to her what was going on. It just kind of took a pass on that. And I, I can yeah. imagine anybody who's you know endured that kind of victimization, this could be very traumatic because you, you see that whole buildup where he's first kind of flirting and kind of bantering with her. She starts to get uncomfortable, but it's probably a good, I don't know, it feels like 10, 12 minutes of buildup before the final killing. And then he ends it with this kind of grotesque, you know, slash absurd punctuation mark with uh, the the actors, uh, her eyes bulging wide open, her tongue lolling off to the side uh, in, in her bra. And it's like hideously sad, but also just kind of darkly bizarre and you know, maybe you laugh out of anxiety and nerves or just at the kind of i don't know startling aspect of, of this that visual still which is pretty easily searchable if you want to check it out for yourself i mean you, you type in frenzy images that that actual picture is going to come up uh it's not really you know the kind of nudity or anything uh, that is featured elsewhere in the film and also is is uh, kind of on the creepy side uh but is definitely a bit of a breakthrough from hitchcock's uh you know standard career yeah i mean i i would say watching it um just the other night like the some of the nudity in the film really did um 
come across as 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 gratuitous oh yeah literally because it didn't really uh, and i mean this is something we've talked about other films that have nudity in it like exploitation films we we were talking about the lone wolf and cub series a couple of months back yeah. and and things like that and you know a lot of the films around the time because it was a fairly novel thing to have nudity in films certainly in mainstream films and there you know so i guess it was more um impactful then but but watching it that's something that struck me uh and again i mean i'm I'm not a prude or anything by any stretch of the imagination but the but the, a lot of those scenes there were certain times in the film where i kind of thought well you know alfred click alfred hitchcock's usually a bit more clever than this he usually yeah. finds really subtle and in uh, you know creative ways to skirt around things and and that's one of the things that we kind of like about him and why he was such a master craftsman is that he found very clever and interesting ways to convey certain things without having to be really blatantly obvious so when there's times when these you know uh, young ladies are are just gratuitously sort of opening their bras and stuff it it did come across a bit like well you know that really wasn't necessary you know, it's almost like, uh, I guess, like it's beneath him in a sense, mm-hmm. I suppose. The way the way I put it is, you know, to pull off scenes like that, you need to have the right energy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and you need to be making a film that has a certain kind of pulpy energy in it to be able to insert stuff like that and it not feel like you're inserting it because you can. And I, I don't really mm-hmm. think Hitchcock has that. And I, it's not a, not a criticism of it. I mean, it's a very elegant, but also a little bit cold filmmaker and, mm-hmm. and being fairly, being more explicit than he usually does. It, it's not just that I'm not used to seeing it in him. It just doesn't feel compatible with the style of the film to suddenly mm-hmm. have a nude shot in it. Right. Yeah. Right. He's not. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're seeing some, uh, some low budget grindhouse exploitation film where, you know, there's a certain expectation about the sort of lurid kind of content and stuff that they were doing because that was the kind of market they were catering for. And that was the, they were kind of trying to offer something, you know, uh, sort of um, salacious to get a certain audience to be interested in the film. And that there was, there's sort of an expectation that you're going to get that kind of stuff. But when you sit and watch an Alfred Hitchcock, you know, this is a man who who made North by Northwest and and uh, the lady vanishes and all these really incredibly inventive and clever, well, beautifully crafted sort of things. And when, and often when he deals with sex issues, like things about sex, or it's always in implications and in in clever little lines of dialogue and in you know, little um, metaphors of, you know, trains going into tunnels and <laughs> things like that. So to when he's sort of being very blatantly sort of, you know, salacious and stuff, it just comes across, you know, it just comes across in a different way. Well, he's also getting up there in years. And so some of that, you know, breast fondling and some of that, you know, the kind of more, uh, we've used the word gratuitous, lurid, voyeuristic. Uh, you do get a sense that's like, you know, you're a little bit past that point, my old friend, you know, yeah. or or sort of the classiness of it. Um, you know, I, I can't remember. One of you, I think maybe David mentioned Giallo, where, you know, that element is really kind of hyped up. And 
again, I'm not like super deep into that genre, but from what little I've seen, what I understand, that's part of the overall package. This here is just kind of taking uh, kind of the quaintness of a of a British wrong man murder mystery and ginning it up in a few different places. But as we've already mentioned, you know, there are there is kind of another breast shot right at the end there, but that second murder of of, of Babs yeah. is much more discreet, much more stylish and actually one of those brilliant uh, camera sh- shots, compositions, like sort of like the big crane shot in Notorious, except now we're going down a stairway backward. There's a little trick cut in there, and it's and it and it's also eerie because the silence and the kind of the the foreboding uh, atmosphere that's created by this kind of silent, you know, creep out the front door and across the street mm-hmm. actually makes it more impactful the idea that Babs this very likable young woman character is you know meeting her end at the hands of a brutal killer um, that mm-hmm. that indirection is actually much more unsettling in some ways than the very graphic portrayal of the first murder yeah and I did wonder about that I was thinking about that about is that scene really impactful on its own or is it because we've gone through the experience earlier in the film where we have seen quite graphically this horrible murder and rape and so then when we get that that slow pan down the stairs and the silence and you kind of you you know what's happening uh um in in the apartment there even though he's not showing it this time because we've already had that experience and we've already gone through that or would it have worked even without that scene at the beginning if you see what i mean yeah i don't yeah. i don't know what like i was thinking about that would would that scene have been as impactful without that first scene you know i don't know in the uh, the making of feature in the blu-ray the screenwriter anthony schaefer was an interesting fellow on his own he takes credit for that difference <laughs> hmm Oh, really? For the idea, like I'm not sure about that because he also, I'll put it this: the graphicness of the first murder scene is preserved from the book. Okay. The oh. second one is sort of equally graphic, and he had said that he suggested to, to Hitchcock that they didn't need to show it twice because mm-hmm. they showed it once and just using. And one of the reasons I'm a little bit suspect is he says, "I introduced the phrase." Uh, you're my kind of woman in the first one. So mm. I could just use it the second time to invoke it. Well, it's in the novel, so I don't know that he introduced it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but but he says that it was his idea that once you've done the murder scene once, you don't need to do it twice. And mm. I, I honestly, I think the second one, you probably doesn't have the same impact unless you sort of know what's happening, which, which you're supposed to be right. thinking it's happening in there. But I find that one much more effective. That one's sort of like, oh, well, that, that was an interesting thing to do. It is that it is that extreme contrast, you know, the fact that we've been, you know, literally up to our eyeballs in the first one. And the second one is just like this almost this helpless feeling you know babs don't go in that room don't take his offer to spend the night in the apartment you know and and she's walking right into a trap and and uh yeah there there's this kind of heartbreaking quality that this Mm. psychopath has lured a a completely innocent and likable person to to her death 
but that also sets up the next, you know, big set piece, which is the potato truck. <laughs> and I mean, yes. there is something uniquely uh, hilarious and darkly absurd about that whole sequence that I think is, again, uh, you know, that's that's where you get your money's worth out of this film. Uh, it's, it's, it's just so kind of wacky, but in a very twisted way uh, when he recognizes uh, after the murder, after he's hauled her corpse into a potato sack and dropped it in the back of a truck, um, you know, finding another sort of creative way to get rid of the body. Um, he goes, uh, he's hanging out in his apartment, goes to pick his teeth with his trusty uh, R monogram uh, tie pin and finds that the, the pin is not in his lapel where he expects it to be and then has this kind of flashback. Again, great editing, great you know composition of, of different bits of film to convey this message without going into words to the audience, here's what's going on. Uh, the victim grabbed his pin, presumably still has it in her hand, um, and he has to go back into the potato truck, find the bag where the, you know holds her body, and of course, then the potato truck, after he's snuck his way back, then now the truck driver gets in, is driving off. And now he's in this moving vehicle down the road, looking for the corpse and finally finds it and has to work through all the, the complexities of rigor mortis. And it is, it's just, you know, almost shamefully, embarrassingly uh, to admit, uh, funny, at least to me. And I don't know, what do you guys think of that whole sequence? I think it's masterful, actually. <laughs> yeah. And as I said a bit earlier, well, partly because he's shifted your allegiances without you really thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Right. That suddenly you're rooting for the murderer in this film. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's got to get his pin back. You know, will he maybe be able to make it before he's discovered or what what's going to happen? And again, it's it's, you know, completely, you know, uh, an offense to humanity, <laughs> how she's treated and even the snapping of the fingers and, and all of that. And then, the, the you know, once he's finally gotten the pin out and, and the, you know, had to break the fingers open to, in order to extract it. You got a quick cut to the uh, the whole gourmet theme, the the, the <laughs> meals and the the breadstick snapping. <laughs> it's just like yeah. really kind of messing with with our heads here because he's again using cinematic sleight of hand to you know just kind of punctuate these these jokes that. Uh, only make sense on film. They're not going to have the same effect in a, in a novel or, or some other type of, uh, even a, a theatrical performance. I don't think you could get it, you know, to work that way. Um, let's, mm -hmm. let's talk about the meals and, and the apparent <laughs> obsession with food because there's a lot of yeah. chomping and, and uh, you know, gazing upon different edible substances. So you've got sexuality, you've got food. Of course, Hitchcock was a notorious gourmet a rather rotund figure, uh, you know, he enjoyed the, that that sensory pleasure. Uh, you get the sense that his sex life was much more repressed and much more buttoned up. But boy, the guy could eat, and he certainly had access to all of the finer things uh, uh, in the table there. But yeah, it was. Give me some of your thoughts on the, these these uh, sort of expository sequences where the uh, the lead detective is describing all of the uh, elements of the case that he's putting together while his wife is serving up these uh, rather unforgettable dishes. Well, I, I was trying to think about those scenes and because they're 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 wonderful and they're very funny and that the lady who who plays uh, the the policeman's wife is 
just fantastic, very, very funny performance, just spot on. But but those scenes, in terms of story, they don't they don't actually serve much of a purpose in terms of the narrative, do they? Because they don't really tell us anything as as an audience that we don't know already. Right. So it's quite an interesting sort of thing that it's almost just the 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 policeman character working out the story, you know, um, and going over all the things that have happened so far. So they're quite interesting scenes and uh, they're almost added in just for kind of comic relief, aren't they really, between all these more sort of unpleasant sort of bits and the suspenseful bits. We just have these nice little interludes with the husband and wife talking over the facts over these very uh, silly meals. And again, that that's a very British thing as well about the, the food because, you know, uh, I think it's only quite recently that, that in Britain that people have, you know, maybe in the last sort of 20, 30 years that people have opened up more to you know, international cuisine and, and, and experience a, a bit more sort of variety in their diets. So I think those scenes back then, that, that's a very British thing about the, the sort of the, the um, aversion to um, more exotic meals or something that's a bit different from sort of meat and potatoes and <laughs> things like well, that. Well, that first so, meal was where the inspector is is kind of having his sausage and toast and and he says, you yeah. know, to eat well in England, you got to have an English breakfast three times a day, <laughs> you know. And yes, but it was, yes. I was, I was rewatching that where you know his his colleague is just kind of just peering very intently at his plate, you know, and he says, "I'm a Quaker Oats man myself." You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. Richard, are there, were those scenes parallel in the novel at all, or was that no, a purely Hitchcockian they, invention? There, yeah. they aren't. I, I gotta say, I hate those scenes like with a burning oh. passion. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, because of the repulsion of the food itself, or, or just two, yeah, no, well, actually, just, two things. When I, I don't find them funny, and okay. that's a that's a hard that's a personal kind of thing. I, I don't sure. I don't find them amusing, and I think they're utterly pointless right <laughs> like <laughs> okay and and it's the biggest difference between the novel and the movie i'll say i hated them disliked them before i saw read the book yeah, when i read the yeah. book the policeman character is an entirely different character and he's actually mm. sympathetic he doesn't believe that blaney is probably the, is the murderer okay he thinks so that, that yeah he thinks that the evidence is too circumstantial and that he's there's a very good chance that he's not and he's finally kind of persuaded simply because they catch him red-handed with mm -hmm. Barbara's clothes and what's he yeah. going to do. Right. I think the first scene where he explains the plot to his wife is terrible, like utterly pointless, not needed <laughs> in any sense. At okay. least the second one where he yeah. explains why he doubts it, there isn't already scenes that that establish that. In, in those many in those many words so there's a little bit of an excuse for it but the first one you've already had dialogue that established every single thing he says it's like the the, the assumption that the audience is too stupid to be following it so now he's going to sit here and explain it to us sure well i, I you know i i this is where I'm going to get into my arms, armchair shrink thing again. I, you know, it feels to me like there's some commentary on his own marriage yeah. uh, and just kind of the state of married life because it's not even just the fact that his wife is serving up, you know, under the idea that she's bringing home some kind of 
uh, elevated culture, you know, and she's pursuing her hobby and she's serving her husband something very unique and distinctive and classy and all of that. But the fact that he has to sort of fake his enjoyment of all of this because he can't really say, get this crap off my plate, you know, and, and, and there are those jokes where he's spitting pieces out. And, uh, so yeah, I, I guess it, it, are you going to, uh, appreciate that little juxtaposition of, you know, Hitchcock's kind of slight, you know, kind of veiled swipes at domestic life. And, and his, his relationship with Alma is the stuff of books and speculative biographies and all of that uh but it feels like yeah there may have been some uh some personal working out or expression of things that uh, he couldn't come right out and say in so many words uh uh coming out of his personal life and just kind of where he was at as his uh as his years advanced and he recognized that some of those options uh were just no longer uh open to him he is apparently the one who really pushed for humor in this movie mm-hmm I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure I would have put humor in this movie if I if I if I were making it. But I mean, I, I think it makes the the film overall a nice package in the sense that we get a real sort of you know it, 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 it's the real entertainment factor of the film is that it takes you, you know, it, it there's the the suspense, the horror, the terror, and then there's these comic moments, and then and sometimes they're all kind of rolled in together. And so the film really does take you for a ride through the course of it. And then we, you know, end up in the end, it becomes a little bit of a prison break film and, uh, you know, and there's all these different elements in it and it does kind of keep you sort of wondering what's going to happen. And uh, so I, I I mean, I agree with, with Richard. And like I said, uh, the, the, the scenes actually have no sort of narrative function within the film itself they don't tell you anything that we don't already know unless maybe i guess in the cinema if someone went off to you know buy a, a packet of m&ms or something <laughs> and missed a little bit yes. it, it serves as a sort of a recap for for this something that you missed but um but i i mean i do enjoy them i like i said i think it's mainly just the the lady I, i'm sorry i can't say what her name is without looking it up but um the the actress who 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 plays his wife is very amusing. Yes, I um, agree, hundred percent. I should add that. Yeah, so I, I I do quite enjoy those those scenes, even though they are kind of very silly and and uh, the food is just ridiculous and everything as well. But yes. but I think they are they work within the you know the overall package. I think just to make it a very entertaining sort of. Um, ride from the beginning to end of the picture really sure uh, we'll give her credit her name is vivian merchant uh she was mrs oxford uh, yeah. uh, alec mccowan the detective i have to point out clive swift um he was mm-hmm. recognizable to me as the husband from keeping up appearances uh, uh that was uh, yeah was that yeah, the Johnny Porter character, right? He he he's yeah. he's one of yeah, the, his mate. Yeah, his his mate yeah. from the RAF that kind of <laughs> helps uh, shelter him and get him out of his predicament until he ends up getting caught anyway. So, well, that this might be a good opportunity sure. then for me to to talk about. You remember I said at the beginning I had a little bit of a sort of a tenuous uh, personal connection to Frenzy, in the sense there there is a. Uh, um, uh, two scenes in this film, one at the, near the beginning and one near the end where uh, Rusk, the, the, the villain of the film is talking to a Bobby, a policeman on the street. And they're just having a bit of a gossip 
about uh, you know the the necktie killer and and the crimes have been been going on and uh, they they're just having a little chat. Uh, and that uh, policeman, the man who's playing the policeman in those two scenes, is a man named Philip Ross, who's an Australian actor. He is an Australian actor, I should say, sorry. And uh, he is actually uh, my wife's uncle. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> well, cool. I, well, I should okay. say uncle by marriage, sure. is that he's married yeah. to uh, her, her aunt, who is uh, named Felicity Gordon, who's also an actor and uh, writer and, and director in Australia. And uh, I just thought I would give them a little shout out yeah. because it was nice when we watched uh, the film the other night. Uh, I sat and watched it with my wife. And then when that scene came on, she went, hey, that's my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and we knew like she knew that he'd been in a Hitchcock film because apparently in his in his uh, sitting room in Australia, in his home, they've, they've, he's got a picture of him with his arm around Alfred Hitchcock uh, and they had a little snap together. And he had mentioned that he was he had been in an Alfred Hitchcock film, but um, when we watched it, that that scene popped up, and she went, "Oh, hey, there's my uncle," and and uh, so that was quite nice. And I just thought I would mention that and give him a little shout out well, that's because, very uh, cool. yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, anyway, yeah, he's a he's a very uh, like a uh, uh, character actor in Australia. He's been in loads of television programs and films and things, and he spent a sort of about a twenty year. Uh, period in England, which is where he met his wife and uh, and did a lot of work here. He was in a lot of British TV shows and films and stuff around that period. So uh, so he just kind of pops up in all sorts of little things. But I just thought I would just give him a little shout out there because he's yeah. in Frenzy just for those two scenes. I was just gl- just glancing at him. He's in a Billy Wilder film too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been he's been in loads of stuff. He was in the uh, the you know what, what's it the Private Life of Sherlock yeah, Holmes as well. Is that the one you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but yeah. Um, so they're out there in Australia. I don't know if they'll hear this or not, but uh, I say hello to Flick and, and Phil out in Australia and hope, hope well, they're sure. doing well. <laughs> that, that's great. <laughs> I, I hope you're listening in. Well, I did really enjoy the Britishness of this. I mean, the fact that Hitchcock could kind of pull some of that that street humor the the slang and the just the cultural bits there even some of the language i mean pissing in the beer and grabbing your tits rather than pints you know i mean there there is a coarseness that uh, i'm not sure we'd heard of that kind of language um you know i think somebody's called a shit and there's a, a bastard thrown in there I, you know i don't typically recall a lot of uh, you know kind of vulgarity in, in Hitchcock either and, and they kind of seem to cut loose on the linguistic front as well but I think I think that that actually all worked pretty well I, I did find the humor pretty diverting and, and pretty uh, you know generally accessible and amusing maybe I just kind of like that that quirky Britishness uh, of this era and and seeing some of that that character come through uh, in, in the dialogue and and this you know the, the British English characters kind of playing up that angle a little bit when, uh, you know, Hitchcock had not been given as many opportunities because of the, you know, different international situations uh, in, in his movies for, you know, the decades leading up to it. Are there any other elements that we want to kind of touch on before we uh, draw the conversation down? I mean, uh, I'll kind of give you both a free shot at it there. Okay. Well, 
Well, I'd, I would just uh, talk uh, just for a minute about to John Finch, the the sort of the oh, lead yeah, in the yeah, film, sure. because I, I think he's quite an interesting uh, actor in that he was someone that around this period he did quite quite uh, well. Not uh, he did a couple of quite high profile films, you know, working for quite major directors. Yeah, Polanski Macbeth is the one that we've covered on this Yeah, definitely, cast, which is like, sure. you know, one of my absolute favorite films. I think that Roman Polanski's Macbeth is a is an amazing piece. And and then he he's in this as well. And then after that he he, he did one or two kind of other films. And then he he his he just sort of um ended up kind of uh, fading from the limelight quite a bit, didn't he, afterwards? Yeah, I think there are two yeah. things going on there. One, he seems to have gotten quite ill. Yeah, he had he had a problem where he became diabetic, yeah. or he discovered he was diabetic, and it caused him some problems um, having to give up some, some roles and things, yeah. and he had some health issues. And quite famously, he turned down James Bond as well. Yeah. Apparently, he was offered uh, James Bond uh, when... Uh, before Roger Moore took over, and and he turned it down, and I don't know if that was for health reasons or for other reasons, but it, it's quite interesting that he was someone who who was kind of like quite an up and coming rising star in the early seventies, and it looked like he would be someone who would be, uh, you know, a big a big film star of the period, and then quite almost as quickly as it began, he his his star kind of faded, and he just um, you know. Um, he, he kept working. I think he worked well into the eighties and stuff to me. Yeah. But, um, Funny. but it, it's, I just think he's interested because he's quite a very good actor and he's got quite a lot of screen presence. And, and I think he's quite good in this and he's, he's very good in Macbeth as well. Um, and I just thought I would mention it uh, just, you know, I just thought again, he might deserve a bit of a, a shout out really. <laughs> Because, because yeah. he's someone who whose career maybe didn't quite develop the way you you might have expected in 1972. So, interesting tying it to current days. I think his last really prominent role is in the original Death on the Nile. Yeah, from '78, which has yeah. now been remade yeah. by Kenneth Branagh and all that. Yeah. Hmm. All right, Richard. Any final observations that you want to toss out there? I I guess I know the screenwriter like Anthony Schaefer. Um, yeah. uh, Hitchcock had a habit of using like very, like pretty uh, prominent writers on this. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently, he offered the job of writing the script to Vladimir Nabokov first, who turned. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, Schaefer was sort of up and coming at the time because he wrote uh, *Sleuth*, the play, mm-hmm. right? Which is funny because you say Michael Caine turned this down. Michael Caine turned this down to be in the film version of *Sleuth*. <laughs> yeah right okay but then he yeah the michael kane thing's really funny isn't it because apparently he turned down this film because he thought it was too unpleasant and he didn't want to be associated with such a sort of nasty character but if i'm not mistaken he went on later to play kind of a nasty serial killer in one of brian de palma's films yes yeah but but about 10 years later and in yeah, during a period where I just he didn't like, do anything, I'd say. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I just thought that was an interesting thing that he sort of turned down being in an Alfred Hitchcock film because he didn't want to play a, yeah. a nasty serial killer. But then later on, he kind of played all kinds of nasty serial killers and all sorts of strange 
you know, characters later on. Do so. you have much to say about Barry Foster? I mean, it seems like the name sounds familiar to me. I mean, he was the guy who, Bob Ruska, who did these killings. And yeah. you see him grinding and sweating and, you know, yeah. you know, it's, it's, oh, he's, he's great in this he's, film. He's, isn't it's he? a great performance, but I'm just wondering, did his yeah. career suffer any consequences because of that? I mean, I think Kane oh, I was, so. was kind of a leading man, kind of almost a matinee idol of sorts, even though he played tough guy characters yeah. and he was no, you know, golden boy, but, uh, I could imagine maybe he just thought, eh, there's, and there's other things to choose from. So maybe. He, well, yeah, probably at the time he could pick his, pick and choose things because he was kind of at the very top of his game at the time like his stardom was absolutely at the peak during that period so uh, he was probably offered more or less and anything going and he probably turned down loads and loads well, of things. Well, and if you look at Hitchcock's recent track record, I mean, if he couldn't, you know, if Paul Newman could kind of fizzle, well, maybe Kane didn't think that connecting himself to Hitchcock was such a solid career move at that point too. I, I could imagine that might've been a, yeah. another, just, you know, a, a thought in his mind. Um, but I think the chap who does play him, I, I yeah. think he was fair, a fairly established sort of stage Okay. Yeah actor in England and sort of a kind of a a relatively established kind of character actor. And I think he went on just to have a fairly, you know, diverse career again, probably much like John Finch, like Mm -hmm. doing, you know, uh, sort of good character parts in films and TV programs and things like that. And uh, so I think he, he had a fairly stable regular career, but I don't think he, I can't think of anything off the top of my head with it without looking it up if he was in any more sort of high profile mm-hmm. sort of um, films after this. No, that's it. The highest profile thing for him is Twisted Nerve before this with Billy Whitelaw, who's also in it. Yeah, okay. uh, I mean, that's largely why he got the job in this one. Mm. Well, another job assignment that kind of switched was uh, the original. Uh, casting if you will of henry mancini to do the soundtrack yeah. this was of course was years mm-hmm. after uh, bernard herman and hitchcock kind of had their falling out which i think was more on hitchcock than herman but in any case uh, henry mancini was originally recruited he submitted what he thought was a hitchcockian score and hitch didn't like it and he got this guy named ron goodwin uh what do you guys have to say about ron goodwin as a as a theme composer i mean I like the music. I think the opening theme in particular was 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 pretty jaunty and definitely just gave you the sense that hey, Alfred Hitchcock's back in London. You know, all's right. There's the City of London logo up in the corner there, and the music very much accompanying it. Kind of brought a nice burst of energy into those the, that opening sequence. But uh, it, it is definitely a great opening mm-hmm. sequence. I love that the the sort of helicopter. You know, sort of the slow pan across the Thames down to you know tower bridge and and that and that whole opening and the music and everything is 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 really great actually i think it's a great opening and i think this was pretty effective yeah and it seems like goodwin had a pretty you know prominent pretty successful career mostly it seems like in english movies but uh yeah yeah genre stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah he's a pretty solid kind of uh Turning out is turning out a good score for a little, for an adventure kind of yeah. It seems like he was able to pick it up on relatively short notice and and came up with a pretty pretty good score. So so as far as you know, I think you you've, we've all said this isn't like the top of 
Hitchcock's game in terms of those all-time classics. But, you know, some of the links that I've put in the show notes, uh, collecting reviews, most of them on the positive side, a few that maybe had some constructive criticism or, you know, maybe took it down a peg or two. But there's a lot of people who do feel like this was Hitchcock's last you know, really satisfying film. Uh, Family plot, like we've mentioned earlier, is coming up. And it is, it's, you know, and and it's funny, I've got some, I've got some books. I've got one called The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, I think it is. It's a, it's a hardcover, oversized book from the late 70s. Um, You know, Family Plot, you know, was not intended to be Hitchcock's last movie. In fact, he was still under contract with, with Universal to produce at least two more titles. And, you know, time ran out on him, and that was that. But uh, I, you know, I I do feel like yeah, this is a pretty solid uh, revival of sorts for Hitchcock, uh, given you know some of his struggles in the late '60s. And I definitely recommend it. I'm really glad that we've had this opportunity to to get into an hour plus worth of discussion about about Hitchcock. Richard, did you want to make one uh, final statement there, or throw a thought in? Let's just throw out one little bit of interesting trivia. Apparently, like the the book is not called Frenzy. It's only retitled right. Frenzy when the movie came out. This movie is called Frenzy because he'd worked on an entirely different screenplay called Frenzy before this. Yeah. <laughs> that he threw away because it ended up seeming too similar to Psycho. So it seems like when he decided to do this book, he just decided, well, let's call it Frenzy. <laughs> Had he already like filed the copyright paperwork or something on it because, I mean, yeah because to me frenzy feels more like and i guess yeah you can say uh, bob rusk was frenzied when he was committing yeah. these murders but this isn't a slasher flick or you know just a complete out of control maniac which is like to me that's what the word frenzy sort of uh, suggests in the imagination it feels uh, it feels very much like the title that british psycho copies mm. would get in the late yeah. 60s like a lot of the okay. hammer ones called yeah, yeah and, and um, oh what's his name but a lot of the the cheap like other movies like maniac or something yeah, like that yeah, yeah, called right. like berserk <laughs> and frenzy uh-huh. and, yeah you know. right so since he had that one had the rights to it he's going to go ahead and use it yeah <laughs> all right uh david anything else you want to wrap it up with uh, before we uh pull the curtain down well, no, not really. I think we've summed it up pretty well. I, th- I think yeah. this is a good, entertaining film, and it's worth uh, worth watching. It's maybe not Hitchcock's uh, sort of greatest uh, moment, but it, it's definitely definitely a good, solid film. So, check it out, folks. Absolutely, and a lot of a lot of us probably have it in that box set. Like you say, it's not available yes. on the Criterion Channel at this time. Seems almost unlikely that it ever will come back, but you know it was there for a moment, and that was enough of an excuse for us to pull off this conversation. Uh, Yeah, nowadays you can usually pick up that Hitchcock set pretty cheap. Oh yeah, uh, that's usually the kind of thing that gets uh, marked down in sales and stuff. So you can usually pick it up, and it's got you know Shadow of a Doubt's in there, Mm -hmm. and Rope, and um, and uh, Rear Window, and. You know, all, oh, all it's a it's a great know, vertigo. Bargain. Absolutely, yeah. I so think that, definitely, folks should pick it up if they if they see it at a good price. Definitely. Well, now the next question, of course, is the 4K upgrades, and I, I've I've yeah. heard that the that there's a few more, there's at least one more 4K set. I think they did the big one, which was what Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, yeah, and Psycho, and Psycho, and yeah, the, the kind of the no, main I think, I think the birds are not North but more Northwest. So, uh, but they're basically breaking this same set down into four 
4K upgrades, but I don't think Frenzy is slated for Volume 2 yet. So No, no. <laughs> They're, of course, doing this so that I have to hold on to the Blu-ray set, even if I buy the 4K. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they they got us figured uh, for sure. You know, they they know how to eke it out and uh, maximize the that's right the sales, don't they? <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Hopefully, listeners, you feel the same that uh, the mixture of thrills and chills and uh, a few belly laughs here and there uh, gave us uh, gave us a good movie to talk about. Uh, the next one up on my spreadsheet here uh, is going to be uh, Jacques Demy talking about another great director certainly not as celebrated as hitchcock but he's got his admirers and this is a very uh, obscure little gem from 1972 called the pied piper starring that uh, hippie flower child donovan in the lead role and uh, i'm definitely looking forward to that conversation so that will be coming up fairly soon and uh, look forward to hearing uh, you know, what my guests have to say about that one and i've also got some plans with trevor barrett he and i are getting another um, inside the box episode together They'll probably be recording in in early March. So we've got some uh, different irons in the fire. So uh, thank you for listening, and everybody. Look forward to your feedback, encouragement, comments, and even if you have a disagreement or two with our takes, uh, let me hear from you. always appreciate getting to know what the listeners are experiencing in this little program I've been doing for a number of years now. So one more time, thank you for listening in, and we'll all be back to you soon. Bye-bye. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye.